about the future. Welcome to Future of Marketing, presented by Tint, the world's most powerful user-generated content platform. Each week, we interview leading marketers to uncover their routines, strategies, and perspectives. With the latest in marketing, here's our host, Yvonne Aldaz. Hello, and welcome to today's episode of Future of Marketing. Today, we have Neil Schaefer, digital marketing consultant, author, and speaker. He teaches businesses around the world how to transform their sales and marketing and help them develop strategies across social media marketing, influencer marketing, and social selling. A fun fact about him is he speaks Japanese and Mandarin Chinese. He's also the author of three books on social media and has his own podcast where he presents his views on all things social and digital. Neil, thank you so much for joining today. I'm very excited to be speaking with you. The one thing I feel like people are probably wondering now is how do you do it and what does your typical day look like? Well, thank you so much for having me, Yvonne. It's uh, the pleasure is mine. I'm really excited to be here. How do I do it? Uh, I am lucky to be in a position where I have my own business and I'm able to work with clients. And when you're deep, when you're deeply immersed in something, in this case, both working with clients and with my own branding and with my own, you know, activities, it just allows me to spend every minute of every working day uh, serving others while also being in R&D mode, right? And always learning and always experimenting and always looking for new insights. So it's a job that I wouldn't change for anything in the world. And uh, I'm, I'm very fortunate to be able to be able to do this. Nice. And I, and I see that you travel quite a lot, don't you? You know, I used to uh, pre-COVID. Uh, I just got back from Podcast Movement in Nashville, Tennessee. So it was, that was my first in-person conference in, well, really since COVID started in March of 2020. So yes, though, I do, uh, you know, I do speak fluent Japanese and I service clients in Japan, both their Japanese headquarters as well as their American subsidiaries. So usually I'm over in Japan a few times a year at least. And then obviously the conferences and I teach uh, executives at a few universities, including Rutgers Business School in New Jersey, and then uh, the Irish Management Institute in Ireland, which sends me over to Dublin every year. So yeah, there's quite a bit of travel. That's incredible. It sounds awesome. Um, so, okay. So I'm curious, I don't know about anyone else, but I want to know how you got started with Japanese. So I grew up in an area in Southern California where most of my friends were Asian American. And this led me on a journey when I went to university to study an Asian language. It turned out to be Chinese because most of my friends were, were Chinese American. And I did two years of Chinese. I did my junior year abroad in Beijing, China. And it was actually at the time during uh, this historical event called the Tiananmen demonstrations back in 1989. So I'm just aging myself there. But uh, it was that experience. And also at the time, Japan was really growing. Uh, there were articles in the Wall Street Journal. We need to study the way Japanese companies do business. I had a roommate in Beijing who was Japanese. So when I came back from Beijing, I actually stopped off in Japan for a week to spend time with my roommate and learn more about Japan. And then I started taking Japanese senior year of college. And uh, when I graduated, I was able to start working for a company in Kyoto, Japan, the, the ancient capital of Japan. So I thought it was just going to be a two-year thing, but I ended up staying there for 15 years. And that experience living in Japan and doing business in Asia has really provided me you know, a holistic and, and sort of international perspective on everything I do in marketing and in business. So um, I, I attribute that to a lot of success that I've had and a lot of the thoughts that I've been able to pour into writing and books and, and podcasting and work with clients really, I think, stems from that professional experience and just being forced to look at things in a very, very different way. 
Yeah, I can't even imagine. That's incredible. Honestly, kudos to you. I, I think that's admirable. Just knowing more than one language, especially in marketing, that's a gift. So I, I really want to know where you get a lot of your news and resources from. Where do you typically look for that? Um, yeah, so I have my own and, and I've actually taught this to other people. But to simplify it, uh, I realized that in in marketing, there are a number of different sources of information. So basically, I have an RSS dashboard and I will often curate content from this RSS dashboard to share in my social media as well. But more importantly than that, it really keeps me, uh, keeps my finger on the pulse of what is going on. So this is something that anybody can do. And uh, I use a tool called InnoReader. I know that there are other RSS readers out there, but InnoReader will allow me to create an RSS, an RSS feed of an RSS feed based on if certain keywords appear in titles. So if something is going on with TikTok and it's in the title of a article that comes from one of these, you know, hundreds of, of sites out there that, that talk about marketing, um, it will come up in a separate RSS feed and feed this content curation tool that I have so that every morning I can see the latest news on TikTok, on Instagram, on LinkedIn, on influencer marketing. And that has really helped me not just do my own content curation better, but help me really um, stay abreast. I think outside of that, uh, you know, there's a term called like deep thinking or deep work. And I forget who the, I, I heard him on a podcast once. I forgot who the author of like the, the book was, but it's this notion of, of going deep when you do things. And I find myself doing this a lot in work where I literally have to turn off the internet, you know, turn off the phone in order to work really deeply on things to get it done. It's sort of the way that I operate. So in the same way, when I need to learn something about something very, very specific, I will go very, very deep on it. So in other words, I don't necessarily read the news for that, but I'm really good at doing searches and finding relevant and uh, authoritative content or whether it's in a blog format or YouTube format or podcast to allow me to really quickly learn about that subject. Um, and this is a technique, once again, that I think most marketers are probably good at. So this is nothing unique to me, but I find just that concept of going deep into things and not multitasking has really helped me focus and learn when I need to learn. I don't necessarily need to do that every day, but when uh, times come where I need to learn something or research something on behalf of a client or, or a project, what have you, uh, yeah, I just go deep. I don't let the news find me, I find the news. I, I go deep and try to find the sources and the perspectives out there, and from that try to draw conclusions and then obviously try to implement what I learn, um, follow the data, uh, and go from there. I really like that response. It's awesome. And if you end up finding the author of that, please share that with me. I, I, I would love to read a little bit more on that. It's awesome. Um, so just going back, you mentioned that you just went to your first in-person event earlier. Um, I'm curious to see what you've learned over the last year. Just we know it's been so chaotic and marketing changed completely. Social media is rapidly changing. So what's something that you feel that you've learned? Well, it's funny you ask that. So I published my last book on influencer marketing called The Age of Influence. It actually published in March of 2020. So uh, literally, I believe the day, two days after it published is when uh, Governor Newsom here in California announced the statewide lockdown and, and all this began. So, you know, a lot of people sort of felt sorry for me, but I took it as an opportunity to the time that I don't need to spend traveling or going into an office I have all this time now and the fact that we're all going digital for everything now, I realized that relationships are more important than ever and that I could leverage this time to digitally 
reach out to people. Uh, digitally appear on, you know, I appeared on more than 100 podcasts in, in, in 90 days to try to promote the book uh, and do all these things with a real digital first mentality. And that's actually this next book I'm working on is, is, is you know, tentatively titled Digital First uh, because businesses obviously had to change their entire mindset. I actually had a boon in my consulting because of so many companies now that are used to working with remote workers over Zoom well, why limit yourself to your employees when you can bring in skilled consultants to to help with the work when you don't have that expertise? And there was a huge demand, as you can imagine, for not just social media marketing, not just influencer marketing, but just digital marketing in general. So this has really helped me. You know, I when we were talking beforehand, you were going to introduce me as you know a social media marketing consultant author, and that's what I used to be called. I really started from the social media marketing world, going into the digital marketing world, and I think that coronavirus really forced me to accelerate those efforts because I would have companies reaching out to me for help with their influencer marketing, but yet they didn't have their SEO in place. They didn't have you know, a converting website. They didn't have, a, you know, an email marketing list. They weren't doing marketing automation. They were, they were missing all these pieces that a modern enterprise, a modern company today in a digital first economy must have. You really have to have all your bases covered. So that really accelerated my education into these other things like SEO, like email marketing and really putting together uh, everything that I knew about the subject. But now with the purpose of writing a book, how do I portray all of these technologies with digital first in mind and really with relationships in mind. I think it all, you know, beginning with influencer marketing, which is really about collaborations with other people. Um, you know, I, I would argue that, you know, email marketing is about relationships with people on your newsletter list. Uh, SEO is about relationships with Google. But when you think about backlinks, it's about relationships with other websites as well. So when we think of marketing in terms of relationships in a digital first world, to me, that begins to make a lot more sense. And this is what I teach my clients. So needless to say, coronavirus has allowed me over the last year and a half to really bring all this together. And, and I'm currently building a framework around it, but it's allowed me to really transform the way that I work and the advice that I'm able to give to companies. And uh, I'm, I'm really excited after I finish writing the book to see what it, the reception of those ideas will be. Oh yeah, I'm excited to read that. It sounds awesome. I can't even imagine what you've learned over the last year. But I. I really can't wait to see that. Speaking of the whole digital marketing space, what's something that you feel marketers need to stop doing? I would look at influencer marketing as a place where most marketers either don't understand it, they don't understand it or its value, or they're trying to do it, but they're doing it the wrong way. And I think this leads to a thing that a lot of marketers are doing wrong is just using social media as a paid media tool. Uh, whether it's working with influencers with a paid media, uh, we'll just pay them money and you know see what traffic they bring or what likes they get, or just giving money away to the Facebooks and the LinkedIn's and, and the Twitters and the TikToks of the world. Uh, I believe that at the end of the day, the reason why businesses are on social media is because of the potential of digital word of mouth. And when you think about it in those terms, you know, advertisements do not go viral. Well, some do, you know, don't get me wrong, like Super Bowl commercials, what have you, but very few go viral. Very few really spread word of mouth. What spreads word of mouth are when people, you know, creators post unique content that others truly want to share. Uh, and, and that's why influencer marketing has so much value because you have people that have created communities 
from their content, from their engagement. And by collaborating with these people, then it gives us the opportunity to really be heard and to really incite that word of mouth in social media. And I would argue, you know, vis-a-vis what you're all doing at TintUp is, is leveraging not just influencers for their platforms and their communities, but also for their content. And I tell my clients, you know, let us have as close to a 100% user-generated content strategy as possible. Because we know that with every piece of content, we know that it's been it's been created by a content creator who probably is much better uh, at creating content that people will consume versus brands um, because they're people and they've been doing this and, and they've been able to build up bigger communities and brands. But also by leveraging user generated content, it gives you the ability to actually create a connection with that content creator. And I believe that's the first step in any influencer marketing is the relationship will you know, why not work with creators on their content? Why not, you know, hire them uh, to create content for you as a first step instead of seeing them purely as a way to amplify. So I think that, you know, misunderstanding influencer marketing, misunderstanding the value of user-generated content uh, are the, and just too reliant on paid media when it's social media. Um, I'd say those are sort of the three areas that I find many companies still really struggle with. And, you know, I gave the example of, you know, like an Instagram user generated content, but it could be YouTube. It could be uh, a guest blog post. It could be a guest interview on a podcast. There's many different ways of, of including other people into our content. And these other people obviously could be influencers. They could be our customers. They could be our employees. And, and that is really what most companies are missing out on that potential to really use social media, not as a way to advertise or you know, do constant blatant self-promotion, but as a way to connect with other people and develop genuine relationships that can pay dividends in many, many different ways. Oh yeah. And it really sticks out on the feed when you know, when it's being authentic or when they're being genuine versus when they're being self-promotional, just sharing content, just to, just for the heck of it. Um, Absolutely. You answered my question on what brands should start doing, but I want to hear a little bit more on why you think user-generated content is so valuable for brands. Yeah, you know, I go back to when I believe that Disneyland was one of the first documented brands that said, we're just going to go 100% UGC on Instagram. And the comment they made, Disneyland was a little bit late in creating an Instagram channel. But when they created it, they said, look, we cannot compete with the creativity, with the authenticity uh, of our guests, of our fans. Um, and we would rather leverage their content, which to be honest is is as good, if not better than our own content. And I, you know, at the time it was quite revolutionary. I don't know how many brands were listening, but it's the same thing, right? We, you know, brands try to create this brand perception, but at the end of the day, it's the customer, it's the public that owns the perception of what that brand is. And they're displaying that every time they post something on social media, right, about that brand. So rather than, you know, trying to fight that or trying to talk about your brand in your own terms, which you have a website to do, by the way, you have, a, you know, a PR department and press releases, what have you, you know, social media is, is about being social. And companies can spend a lot of money trying to create content that looks authentic quote unquote. Um, but at the end of the day, the content's already there, right? So it's just a very, very different way of thinking about your marketing and your content. 
And I know that there might be some listening, hopefully not because of who is the, uh, you know, the host of this podcast, but just really adverse to user-generated content. It's not our content, right? But that's the whole point because it is social media. It does call for a different way of doing things. And really our objective should be about building relationships with our fans, with our customers, with potential customers. And it really should be focused on the content, no matter who made the content, right? Um, but when we leverage that user-generated content, it does give us the additional benefit of developing a relationship with that content creator. So, you know, there's a lot of different reasons. Now, if you have a great content studio and you have full-time, you know, content people on staff and, and you're you know, your efforts look like they're doing well. They have very high ROI. I'm not saying you need to definitely, you know, I'm not saying you need to necessarily change things, but I know from the accounts that I manage that if you can start replacing some of your own content with UGC once a week, twice a week, it does open up these thoughts that, wow, I'm develop the, developing these relationships. I'm giving real, um, you know, the content in the feed is a little bit more authentic because it's coming from our fans. It's offering a little bit more variety, a little bit more diversity. And I believe at the end of the day, it actually leads to more in, an engaging feed, higher engagement, and even a, a bigger ROI for the remaining content that might be your own. So hopefully that answers your question. Oh, no, it totally does. And and I love that you used the Disneyland example because I'm going to be there this week. So a great way. Nice. Um, but I like you, you mentioned something about brand perception and you reminded me of a quote by Marty Newmeyer. It is a brand is not what you say it is, it is what they say it is. And I think you're so on point with that. And another thing that you mentioned was that brands should start plugging in user-generated content into their strategies once, twice a week, three times a week. I think that's really good because experimentation is key, right? This will get, give you the ability to see what's really working and what's not. And more often than not, you're going to see that the UGC is going to perform better just because of that authentic factor that you mentioned. Yeah, You know, any brand could have sent up a content studio and created content better than any influencer out there and built up a bigger community than any influencer, but they didn't because they can't, they're not people. They, they are driven by different objectives and motives. And that's the whole point. Why try to compete? Because every time you post your own content in the feed, you're competing with influencers for the same community. Why try to compete with people that are doing it better than you? Why wouldn't you want to work together with them? And I think that's really the main message here. I agree. Why not go to the people who are already talking about your brand and creating content about it? right yep. there. Absolutely. So what what do you feel most marketers tend to struggle with? And how can we fix this? I think part of it is just the control aspect that they don't want to give up that control of their content. I think another thing might be maybe misunderstanding the legal um, you know, perception that hey, someone illegal said we can't do this. Uh, you probably get that a lot of your company. So I think number one, you know, you're not you're not necessarily giving up control because you can leverage any user-generated content you want. It's your choice. Uh, you know, no one's forcing you to post content you don't want to force, but it gives you the ability to pick and choose what you think is most aligned with your brand values in terms of content, right? So it, you actually have more control because now you have more content to choose from than what your own internal teams are creating. So let's that, you know, so let's get off the the, the control problem. The legal problem is yes, you need to have legal permission. 
and you ask for permission to post their content. And if they agree, it's done. It's not, you know, complicated. I've seen brands, you know, Ritz Carlton is one in mind where if you use one of our branded hashtags, then, you know, here's the legalese and this is why we have the right to republish it on our site. Um, if you go to the Ritz Carlton website uh, site on Instagram, there's actually a Bitly link. And when you click on the Bitly link, it will show you all those regulations regarding these branded hashtags. So there's a few different ways of doing it. Uh, obviously, reaching out to the creator one by one uh, to, to ask for permission. I mean, many times, if they're a fan, they would love to give you permission. Uh, there's also, if you are actually creating content together with influencers, then there should be a contract in place. And in the contract, you just say, hey, we have the right to that content. Um, what you then find, I mean, the, the thing that, you know, not, not a problem that marketers have, but something they don't understand is the ROI of all this. Because all the way down the line, the data shows that user-generated content is going to perform better. It's not just performing better in your feed. It's actually performing better in advertising, in social media. It helps your shopping cart convert better when you're leveraging user-generated content. Every step of the, of, of the marketing funnel, when you leverage user-generated content, it's only going to improve things. So that, that's where I would start to better understand this. And then, well, what, what is the internal pushback? What are the issues? You know, outside of the control and the legal issue, what else is there? I mean, what would prevent you from actually improving your marketing ROI uh, in this manner? Uh, that, that's what I would I would want to know. And if I was a manager, I'd want to know that as well. Why aren't we doing Why aren't we doing more of this? What is the data that shows this doesn't work? What are the problems that say we we can't do this? And fortunately, I think you've also seen over the last few years, more and more companies are leveraging more and more user generated content. So we're definitely moving in that direction but not everybody's on board yet. And I think they're really missing out. And well, over the last year, year and a half, people were working from home. A lot of the world was working from home. And so content production ended up being brought in-house, literally into your house. People were creating <laughs> content from their own homes and helping their own companies. Um, they were submitting content about the brands they loved. And if you think about it, the first thing you tend to do when you're shopping is you look at reviews by people who've already purchased whatever product or service that you're going to try and purchase yourself. That's why user-generated content is so impactful because it's real people sharing their experiences with your brand. So I'm going, yeah. I'm, I'm going to wind down the questions for you a little bit because I want to learn a little bit about you. What is a book, a person, or an event that shaped your career and why? Well, I think early on in my, well, I mean, there's a few, when, when we sort of look back and try to connect the dots of our career, there's always these little, these little sparks that inspired something. Um, one of my first was working for a uh, American software company. This is the second company I worked with while I was in Japan and went to their global strategy meeting, you know, every quarter at headquarters in Silicon Valley and the VP of business development we were talking about strategy and all the things that were on the table. And he said, you know, everybody in the room, I want you to understand, although I'm in charge of our strategy, I will tell you that deciding what not to include in the strategy is probably the most important strategic decision we're gonna to make today. And it, it, it's so true that often, uh, whether it, it's my clients that are trying to, you know, effectively manage seven different social media platforms when they can't do one right um, or just trying to do too much 
it without that focus is always remembering to start to pare back and really break down what are the essential things we need to be doing. Everything else can be put on hold. And it's something that I've really stuck with, um, you know, throughout my career. And that was, man, that was more than a decade ago. This before social media is when he said that, but it's still something that stuck with me, not only in my own work, but also the work that I do with brands. I'd say the second one was when I got started, uh, my first book I wrote was about LinkedIn. This is back in 2009. And at the time there was a author named Dan Schauble. Dan wrote a book called Me 2.0, which in, in, at that time was really the personal branding Bible in many ways. And that book and the work that I did on LinkedIn, seeing that your, your profile was really your brand. And the profiles of your employees are what people are going to perceive of the brand of your company when they, they hit a profile and you say you work at a certain company. So that book really opened my eyes to a personal branding uh, and branding in general. And um, it, it's had a lasting you know, impact on, on what I've done. I'd say the other book, being that I'm you know, somewhat of a, a, an entrepreneur, is The 4-Hour Workweek. And while The 4-Hour Workweek, I think a lot of it, you can't sort of, I mean, it, it, was, it was created at a separate time in the world, it, you know, before social media, but the concept of, of leveraging other people's skills to uh, scale is something that I have stuck with both for my own business. Another secret that's allowed me to do a lot is I have a remote team of specialists out there. So when I need something done like podcast show notes, I have someone that's all they do is podcast show notes because they're really good at it, right? And I now can source from people all over the world that are specialists at what they do, whether it be a podcast editor, a video editor, or what have you. And this is something I teach my clients as well. You don't necessarily have to hire someone. If you don't have the budget to hire someone full-time, there is a global community of experts that have been doing this for other companies over the last decade that you can tap into. And I think really at a, at a relatively low cost, really scale your digital marketing operations. So I'd say those are, uh, Kurt Shacker, I don't even know where he is these days, but he was the, the VP and then Dan Schauble and then uh, Tim Ferriss. Nice. That's actually one of my favorite books too. I, I, I know it was written during a different time, but the, there are a lot of really good principles in there that you can live by. And yeah. I'm just really happy that you mentioned that one. And to your first point, you have to say no. So you can say yes to the right things. Just to clarify Amen. that for anyone listening to this. Yeah, Rome wasn't built in a day, right? And I, I think anybody involved in social media marketing knows it's a marathon, not a sprint. So it's it's the same mindset. If you really want to get A done, you can't do A and B at the same time. It, it also relates to this deep work concept I talked about. You got to go deep in order to get certain strategic things done. And if you're trying to do two different things, you can't go deep on either one of them. It's true, 100% true. So where do you tend to look for your inspiration? Uh, I look around me. There's a, a wonderful book and I'm forgetting the name, but my good friend Carla Johnson just wrote a book about innovation and that what is all around you can inspire you to innovate. And it's something that once she taught me that on, on a podcast episode I interviewed her for, um, I look around, you know, she goes inspirations everywhere. It's, it's, it's actually when you're out walking, when you're not thinking about things and you focus on the details around you that you begin to see things that lead to inspire you to do many things, including innovate. So, um, yeah, I'd say, um, you know, I, I definitely listen to a lot of podcasts. 
or I tend to be uh, inspired. Um, and just when I travel, just being out of my normal environment inspires me. And therefore, when I do walks around the neighborhood, uh, it gives me the chance to sort of unplug and really think about things in a different way. And that's, it might sound weird, but sometimes the mundane things can lead to inspiration and innovation. Yeah, I feel like taking a walk around your neighborhood really does help refresh your mind. It really, really helps. Yeah. Um, I need to do more of that because I was really good at it at the beginning of the pandemic, but now that I'm back in office, <laughs> it's kind yeah, of Yeah, and, and podcasts are like brain food. Mm -hmm. I mean, they really are. They really help inspire in many ways. So if you don't listen to podcasts, you may want to start. <laughs> well, you're listening to this podcast. You obviously listen to podcasts, but um, <laughs> you may want to listen to more podcasts. I know. Do you, do you have a favorite podcast? Uh, you know, there's a number of podcasts I listen to. Once again, this is related to sort of my, these concepts about deep work and, and curated content. So I tend to, I have one podcast I listen to. And in fact, you know what? Um, I'm just going to go into my podcast player here so I can give you some exact names. But I have one a uh, podcast that is just focused on um, on called the Simple Pin Podcast. I have one that's just focused on content repurposing called the Content 10X Podcast, which is great. And and I've been on there and talking about influencer marketing and user generated content. Um, I'm currently looking at or listening to YouTube podcasts, so I'm listening to TubeBuddy Express and um, Tube Talk. And right now, Tube Talk is the one that I'm binging uh, two or three years worth. I love Pat Flynn's podcast, Smart Passive Income and Ask Pat. And what am I missing? Blogging. There is a podcast called The Blogging Millionaire that I highly recommend. And then there's some general sort of social media podcasts I listen to. Social Bamboo, uh, very Instagram centric, and then the Savvy Social Podcast. So yeah, we can only listen. If you if you hear the stats, you, only, you can only get through like seven or eight podcasts, you know, uh, a week uh, if you want to listen regularly. So that those are sort of my, my starting nine right now. Thank you. Really good resources there. I want to know what advice you have for marketers or creatives who look up to you. Um, I'd say don't look up to me, but <laughs> I'd say implement. So instead of, you know, I, I just got back from podcast movement and I still consider myself a student of podcasting. There are other things where I, I don't think I'm a student of, but nevertheless, just understanding the latest trends uh, meeting other experts, there, there's always inherent value there. But at the end of the day, you got to put what you learn into action. And I find so many people, they read the blogs, they watch the YouTube videos, they listen to the podcast, they go to the conferences, but they don't put it into action. Now, big brands with big marketing budgets and, and huge staff, you have the ability to do that a lot easier than maybe some of the smaller businesses out there or maybe some of the entrepreneurs out there. But it's it's all about putting it into action because as John Lee Dumas, who actually spoke at Podcast Movement said, and he was quoting Kobe Bryant, it's all about the reps you put in. You don't, nobody, you know, every influencer started somewhere. They didn't automatically create this awesome content. It came over time as they become a master of their craft. They also look at their analytics, what resonates with people, what doesn't. They obviously also, you know, listen to the opinions of a lot of people around them. They learn, they network, and, and they got better. And that is something that every marketer needs to do. And the process begins by actually implementing something and looking at the analytics and getting feedback and posting, you know, not just one video, but 10 videos to see what works and what doesn't work. Why did that work? Why did it not work? So I think the answer is often in not just the data, but having the, the mind to be able to analyze that data as to why, why did it work? Why did it not work? 
And that's what everybody listening to me, I want you to do more of. When you're stuck, I want you to come back to me. But until you get stuck, there's a lot of work, uh, whether it's in the implementing or whether it's in you know the analyzing, asking the why, there's a lot of work that we can all be doing. You shouldn't have time. You know, Don't look for shortcuts asking me these questions because guess what? I'm gonna ask for the data. I'm gonna ask you what you've been doing. I'm gonna try to do for you what you should be doing for yourself. Thank you. And I'm gonna follow up to this question it's not every day that you meet someone who's written multiple books. What advice do you have for someone who wants to write a book? Go for it. <laughs> um, <laughs> everybody, you know, there's that saying, everybody has a great book inside them. And I never intended to be an author by any means. It just happened. Life happens in, uh, in weird ways. But I would say the advice I give everybody, if you want to write a book, understand why you want to write a book. Very, very, very few people make money off books. But the book is a great business card. So if you want to create a great business card, write a book. It's something that you can hand out to anyone you meet, um, whether it's for your career, whether it's for your own you know, personal hobbies. And it's also a great R&D exercise because it forces you to really go deep into something and really think about it. Uh, you know, how would you write a chapter on you know, whatever that subject is? And it forces you to sort of do research if you don't have your own ideas or to develop experiences. So I always say, look, a book is really easy. Um, generally, books are between forty to 50,000 words. So let's reverse engineer this. Do you have 12 ideas that you'd like to put in a book? And therefore, it's 4,000 words per idea, 12 chapters, 48,000 words, you have a book, right? 4,000 words, it's four 1,000-word blog posts. It's an intro and then three bullet points with 1,000 words per bullet point. So when you begin to reverse engineer and, and, and dumb it down, it's not that hard to do, but you do have to block out time, right? In order to do it. And you do have to have that incentive. And this is the why, why am I writing this book? Cause if you don't have it, you're going to stop. You're never going to complete it. So hopefully that gives you all a little bit of, um, you know, you feel like it is something that's doable because it is doable. You know, there are amazing things you can do in a 40 hour work week. If you were to work on your own business for 40 hours and not have to do anything that's currently on your agenda, you know, 40 hours, you might be able to just write a few chapters of that book with that time. So when you think about it that way, it's just a matter of blocking out the time and then doing it. I love that. You said, moral of the story, reverse engineer it and know why you're writing it in the first place. Yeah, and it's funny because I have a lot of people come up to me like, hey, Neil, how do we become more influential? Read the age of influence, reverse, reverse engineer what brands are looking for when they engage with them and then you'll figure it out, right? So often in reverse engineering, we can learn a lot about what we need to know and, and it's it's a tactic that I use quite often in my business. Thank you. And okay, so I have three more questions for you. Number one, what does the future of marketing look like to you and how do you think brands can prepare for this? I think the future is going to be more, even more segmented um, and centers of influence become more dispersed over time. I think when social media just started, we had Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and then Google Plus came in and then came out and then Instagram came in and TikTok. And now you have these, you know, completely new types of media in terms of reels or just this this culture that really TikTok has. It, it goes above and beyond social media platform. It really is a, a culture, just a different way of expressing yourself. So I think it is only going to be more and more challenging for brands to keep up with 
um, with the way that people consume, with the way that people create and consume information. Uh, I believe that the social platforms are going to continue to innovate to keep people on there longer. And TikTok was a very, very welcome addition, just as Snapchat was, because it forces all the other players out there to innovate. And I think we will have new players. You know, I just, at Podcast Movement last week, Mark Cuban was on stage talking about Fireside, right? So social audio, I don't think social audio is going to become as big as TikTok, but social audio is also definitely a movement out there that all the social networks with, you know, with, with, with Clubhouse, what have you, are trying to catch up with as well. So there's a lot more moving pieces and uh, audiences are just a lot more fragmented now. And I think that's very, very challenging for marketers, you know, put the clock back 20, 30 years. They said one thing, you know, TV, radio, newspaper, done. Uh, it, it's not that simple anymore and people don't consume media like they used to. So that's where I believe the role of influencers come in. They're the people that are, that are already there. They're deep in those communities. They're doing it. Not only can they help create content for you, they can help educate you. They can become part of your user focus group. There's just so many, so much value that comes out of those relationships. So that, that will continue to challenge marketers uh, going forward. Obviously, we could talk about, you know, Facebook ads with iOS 14 and, and, and the whole privacy issues going forward. There's a lot of other things we could talk about. But I think just understanding that it's only going to get more fragmented, uh, uh, that should give you some advice as to the things you should be doing now. Um, if you don't have the energy to get deeply embedded into creating TikToks every day, then start engaging and creating relationships with people that are doing that every day. Oh, I love that. And also I noticed, I mean, I'm sure you have too. Social media platforms are getting to a point where they're almost competing to be the only one people need. That's why you see a shoppable social all of a sudden you see social audio on Twitter spaces and clubhouse, all of these little things that they're doing just to throw the other one out of the water. So I'm very curious to see who will be the next leading social media platform. And, and I go back to this book, things that influenced me that I read, um, I think it was in high school, but the rise and fall of the great powers where in world history, you have these periods of time where there's two great countries battling each other, like the United States and the Soviet union. And then it breaks apart into five or six United States, China, Russia. But then over time, it goes back into two and then it disperses. And it was this actual analysis of the last, you know, 2000 years of, of world history where he proved this happened. I think the same thing is with, with a lot of things with, for instance, like social media, you're going to have one or two platforms that come out, but then you're going to have all these other platforms that are going to try to out innovate them like the clubhouses, like the TikToks. And I think we're going to continue to see that. It's going to be like an accordion, right? So I don't think there's ever going to be one platform now. If it's China um, with WeChat, you know, it's another, another story, but they, you know, they have their own rules, right? That we, we don't have here. Um, but but yeah, I, I think we're going to continue to see just because of the great economy we have and the great way that startups can get access to capital and, and be developing, you know, uh, innovative technologies. I, I think we're going to continue to see competition five years from now. You know, the percentage of Americans that use any given social network is going to look radically different than it does today. Who thought Facebook would become a social network for old people? Really? Right. Think about it. I mean, turn the clock back just six, seven, eight years. Who thought that, you know, you were going to be on TikTok two years ago? So that's how fast it changes. Oh, yeah. I Last year, if, if you would have told me download TikTok, I would have told you you're crazy. And now I'm completely addicted to it. Now, last two questions for you. 
Number one, how do you wind down from a long day of work? Family. Nice. Being together with my family. So that's the blessing of work from home is I've been able to be together more with my uh, with my children. I mean, ever since they were born, really. But uh, today as well with, with them being at home, although they're going back to school next week. But um, yeah, just just, you know, tying in with family and, and helping them with their homework and hearing how their day was going to their soccer practices. Um, I've been like, you know, team manager for my son's soccer team in the past and on weekends going to soccer games, you know, to me that, I mean, that's an important part of it. That helps support everything I do, uh, you know, with my life. I'd say the other thing is before I go to bed, I do have my hour of binge watching TV. So, uh, you know, I lived in Japan so long, I missed out on a lot of American culture. So I feel like I'm constantly playing catch up. So I'm finally on the final season of Mad Men, for instance. Um, and I can't wait to finish that so I can move on to another series. But yeah, just having, you know, 45 minutes to an hour um, of having a nightcap and just watching TV right before I go to bed when I know the kids are in bed and the world is in order. Um, it, it's a great, a great way to unwind. That's funny. I, I, I like to binge watch an hour before bed too. And I'm, I'm binge watching The Handmaid's Tale. I'll put that on my queue. <laughs> yeah, you should. And what are you excited about or looking forward to? I'm excited for in-person conferences. I, I think that we human beings are social animals. And as much as we all love work from home and Zoom, um, there's nothing like meeting in person and the the, the the electricity, the engagement, the creativity that comes from that. So um, I'm not going back to work in and all. My clients are still, you know, work from home. Um, I know a lot of you are going to be going back and work work at office environment. But I think from that, we're also going to, you know, a lot of people poo-pooed, oh, we don't need to go into an office anymore. But there's still value in that human interaction. And although in the future we may not go, we we may not go back five days a week. You know, I still think most companies are at least going to have people one day a week going back, just because of the need to connect in person. It 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 there are a lot of things about that that really I believe can't be replaced. So for my work, you know, I'm excited about that not only with my clients, but like I said, going out to conferences and being able to meet uh, you know other thought leaders and 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 authors and speakers that inspire me. Uh, and the ability to connect with more people and, and you know, understand their experiences. And I think that's that's really what drives growth and innovation is, you know, leveraging other people's experiences, right? Learning from them. And a great catalyst for that is being together in person. Yeah, the future is hybrid. And then yeah. it applies not just to work, but to in-person conferences. Now you'll have that virtual component where if you can't go in person, now you can attend virtually as well. So Next best thing. That's what it is, having the ability to choose. Thank you for listening to Future of Marketing. Future of Marketing is a companion podcast to the acclaimed Future of Marketing newsletter. More than 20,000 marketing leaders find resources, strategies, and analysis in this free weekly blast. Sign up today at futureofmarketing.tintup.com. Your likes, reviews, and shares help us grow. Please rate us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Until next time, keep your eyes on the future of marketing.